You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. All right, so y'all the brave ones here to talk about male, female, gender, etc. on a Sunday morning. So, happy Mother's Day to all the moms in the room. Um, I'm going to go ahead and send some sheets around. This is just like a little outline. We're playing the hits here. These are just the big points. And there's some room to write some stuff down if you want. Um, and then we'll send the pins around as well. Um, and then we can sort of go ahead and look to get started. Um, while y'all are passing things around, let's go ahead and try to open in a word of prayer, and uh, then we'll sort of get cracking. Um, Father, thank you so much for bringing us here today. Thank you for um, all the mothers you've brought to us and the influence of all those mothers in our lives, Father. Um, we're thankful that you've given us your word to guide us in unsteady and troubling times. Father, you know that your children are uh, growing up and coming of age in a, uh, in a in an unsteady time, Lord. And so um, we ask that you would guide us through your word um, and through your church, that we might uh, honor you, be faithful to you, Lord, as we talk about this today. Um, would you help us to be charitable to folks we disagree with and to think well uh, and compassionately and in a Christian way about these things. Um, in your Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, good morning. Um, my name's Tucker Fleming. I work with the Junior High Boys here at Advent and uh, drew the short straw. So um, here we are to talk about uh, gender. I believe the title was Male and Female, He Created Them. So um, that's what we're going to spend some time chatting about today. Uh, we are sort of, I guess, probably coming to the end of a series that we called Tough Questions Kids Ask, I believe. And so the last two, Cameron spoke on hell, fun, and um, why the History Channel teaches something different than my youth pastor or my church or the Bible, etc., um, both of those are super important, super relevant to this cultural moment. Uh, I'd especially commend the latter to you. Um, why the History Channel or your college professor teaches something different than the Bible does, um, especially if you have a high school or college-age student or a student who will soon be in one of those categories. Uh, there are deeper worldview issues at play there, and um, probably nobody is better at sort of fishing those out than Cameron. So. Uh, that'd be a really useful talk for you to listen to, even if you don't have kids that age. Um, so today, the question uh, that we're sort of thinking through um, is sort of, did God really create humans, male and female? Um, so I figure we could just sort of like talk about the gender moment, this cultural moment, and sort of what the gender landscape looks like, then we can talk about what the Bible says about this gender moment, and then we maybe can move into like how the church might respond to this moment in a distinctly Christian manner. Um, I think this is an issue that's 
probably becoming increasingly more important for us to talk about um, because it's becoming an issue that's increasingly more commonplace, right? Um, in sort of preparing for this, right, I like went to the New York Times website and just threw a quick search in the word gender, right? And so we get some headlines like, um, is your script gender balanced? Try this test, which is an interactive test for screenwriters and playwrights to see um, if their scripts sort of conform to the prevailing gender orthodoxy of the day. Um, in addition to that, we see headlines like, my gender fluid senior prom. Um, and so this is probably no longer an issue that we can just sort of like slough off as like being sort of localized to San Francisco or somewhere else, right? Like this is an issue that's probably more relevant to our lives um, and to the lives of our kids as they start to sort of ask questions, be exposed to things probably at ever earlier ages. So I think it's important that we sort of think well about things like this in the context of the church. Um, I think probably the only thing more surprising than those titles is the frequency with which they occur, right? These are, those two are not outliers uh, if you search gender um, on whatever uh, mainstream media search engine or anywhere else. Um, it's not super surprising. I think more importantly, or this issue probably needs to be talked about not just because it sort of strikes at our like wholesome family values or our sort of like traditional ideas about what things are and what things are not. Um, it is important for those reasons because those wholesome family values come from a deeper foundation for sure. Um, but really why it's important, I think, is because sort of gender orthodoxy in 2018 strikes at the very heart of the doctrine of creation, right? Uh, it takes this idea that God created things and he created them purposefully with a good design um, and sort of rejects that wholesale and that ripples on down through the way uh, we think about the rest of the world, through the way we think about other people, through the way we think about God, uh, and through the way we think about society and culture as a whole. Um, and so over the next few minutes, we're going to not take a deep dive because this is a very complex issue and you could spend probably weeks talking about it, um, but we're going to just sort of take a quick survey of, like I said, what the gender moment looks like, uh, what the Bible says about it, and then maybe how the church should and could respond to it. Um, and this latter piece is especially important not only uh, for the church to defend her own beliefs, but um, as a sort of positive preaching of the gospel to invite the healing um, into the lives of broken folks who are broken just like we are. Um, and so that's probably important for us to remember is that this talk and the way we think about these issues probably should not be polemical or offensive or abrasive. Um, rather, we should think about the faces of folks that are on the other side of this issue. That doesn't mean that we should be any less um, zealous or um, sort of firm-footed in our stance, but I think it is important for us to sort of keep that in mind. Um, okay, so first, the gender moment, the gender moment, that would be like sort of this time, this cultural sort of milieu and how we think about gender as sort of a Western or American society, and some definitions, right? The, the sort of gender conversation has 
a very specific vernacular that um, it uses, and it's probably a vernacular that is maybe not super, super familiar to all of us. Um, okay, so we'll just take a quick survey of the relevant language. You have some definitions on your sheet. These are not exhaustive by any means. Um, at the very back of your sheet, there's a link to a more exhaustive, but still not completely exhaustive and comprehensive glossary that you can sort of check out after this. There are just some terms that weren't super relevant to this discussion on that, which is why I didn't put it here. Um, okay, so we had first sort of titled this class, Who Created Gender? And Cameron and I chose the word gender very like specifically and purposefully because whereas it's sort of been right in the past to think of gender and biological sex as one and the same, that's no longer the way that um, the academic vernacular and probably the cultural vernacular think of gender and biological sex. Now those two are um, sort of different um, and they've undergone quite a transformation in the past five, ten years probably um, in the literature. So gender sometime around the middle of the 20th century gets separated from the concept of biological sex. There's a guy who's a medical professional, a doctor at Johns Hopkins named John Money who on the back end of a heartbreaking and very disappointing story decides to sort of separate gender and sex um, as sort of ways to think about the human self, right? And we see sex as sort of anatomy, right? If you're a male, this would consist in like broad shoulders, more upper body strength, etc. If you're a female, it would be the opposite of that, plus obviously the ability to bear children, things like that. Um, and so that's what we would consider biological sex. Now your gender would be your own sort of identification, right? Um, we might pair sex with biology and gender with psychology, right? Um, gender would be sort of how you feel. Do you feel like a man? Do you feel like a woman? Do you feel like something in between? Um, and so that's how we end up with headlines like my gender fluid senior prom. Um, so ultimately, we have gender and sex, and typically they match up, right? For most, the overwhelming majority of people, by most generous and conservative estimates, um, conservative as in like, you know, giving the most credit uh, to the opposite side, um, over 99% of American adults, their sex and their gender sort of match up, right? If I think I'm a male, my biology tells me I'm a male, we're good, right? Like that's the experience for the overwhelming majority of folks in America um, and probably the world over. Um, something interesting to note is that um, even now, probably prevailing gender orthodoxy would say that gender and sex are the same thing. Um, for most of human history, we've sort of thought of those two as interchangeable, but biology would determine your gender, right? Um, if you're biologically a male, you would express yourself as a male in the public sphere, etc. Then we sort of move to this position where gender and biology are different. This is just five years ago when I was taking sociology classes at Mississippi State. This is sort of how we were taught. Gender over here, biology over here, they don't always mesh. A lot of times they do, but they don't always. Now, we find ourselves in a position where 
gender and sex do have a one-to-one -one correspondence again, but now it's the gender identity, what somebody thinks they are, uh, or what gender somebody identifies with that's supposed to determine your own biological or physical sex. So primacy is now given to how you feel rather than um, sort of what your biology would tell you. That will be important later on. Um, also, we might like get sort of deep in the weeds here, and I don't want to assume anything um, about like how conversant we might be with these terms and language. So if you have a question, just throw your hand up or just yell at me or something like this can be super casual um, and just let me know like that we need to sort of take something down um, or just like spend a second on something. Um, hey, hey, Tucker, yeah. One thing I may say to you is like frame of context is for parents and kids, like this, what Tucker is saying here may sound totally wackadoodle new to you, but it is like the normal language on a college campus now. It's like an orthodox on a college campus. So that's why like this background that he's giving is so relevant. So that you, at least you kind of, as you think about this from a Christian perspective, you aren't necessarily caught off guard or you're fluent like yeah. what the culture, the language the culture is using. Yeah, that's good. You that's know, a good word. culture informed from? Who's sending this information out to inform them? Well, I'll give you an example, and I don't want to jump into your box. I know you're in, in full steam ahead. But, like, uh, I think it's, it's either Boston University or Boston College. I think it's Boston College. Like, the professors now are instructed to ask students three times a semester what they're identifying as, just in case over the course of the semester a student who is male uh, is now female. And so I would say, um, I'd say it's largely flowing. I mean, Tucker, you're, you know more about this than I do. I'd say it's primarily flowing out of academia. Yeah. And just, and also, too, it's kind of riding the tide of the uh, LBGTQZ, ABCD. The two, I mean, the two are, uh, the, the, it's all kind of. Yeah, no, that that's super super on the money. Um, I moved. I lived in California before I moved to Birmingham, um, and the organization I worked for, some colleagues had suggested at the very beginning that we all like put our preferred pronouns at the end of our um, email signature, right? So it's got like name, phone number, email address, preferred pronouns. Um, so like this is like like <laughs> it sounds like a little bit wackadoodle do, but like this is probably something that creeps eastward through the culture. Um, and so, um, I just want to make another yeah. quick comment. I was up in the Northeast uh, at a college uh, a couple weeks ago at a student union. Yeah. All they had was gender neutral bathrooms. That's right. They had no male bathrooms and female bathrooms. Mm -hmm. So every college student yeah. used a gender neutral bathroom, which was really um, That's right. Almost every Starbucks in Seattle has a gender-neutral bathroom. Dorms are gender-neutral. Mm -hmm. Bathrooms yeah. Right. Yeah. And this is problematic for a number of reasons, right? Um, yeah. It's a... Uh, no, you good. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I'm an interior design trade. Sure. Interested by his point. Um, we have a kindergartner. Yeah. I work with a lot of gay men. Sure. And it's really funny. I had to explain to my child that 
that was somebody's husband. And she literally stopped in the track. She goes, like, really? Like, they're really married? And I'm having to deal with that. And nothing else probably is. But I'm having to, because professionally, I'm in right. the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I really struggle with this. Because my grandfather was a minister. Sure. I about this minister. I know morally it's wrong. I do not want my child to become a lesbian on me. I'm a big, you know. Sure. I'm really in a spot where I really feel convicting these days. I feel like in Mount Brook, West Jamie, we, 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 we live there and send our kids to school there because we're trying to protect them. But in the real world, it's everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. It's very scary. For sure. Parents. Yeah, I mean, like, I was at the Y the other day, and there's like a little TV up in the cardio room, and, um, you know, they were talking about things like this, and there was like, you know, young-ish kids on another like treadmill over probably on the other side of the room from me. And it's like, those are parents that are going to have to answer those questions now if they haven't already. And so this is, I think, why it's important that we talk about these things. Yeah. Because we are most Yeah. Do they have these, like, like I know my mama's professors, like her life, she really fought it. She refused to put up that Sure. She refused to put up the whatever sign. Right. Saying that she was nice to lesbian and gay people. Sure. She got a lot of flack on it. Yeah. I'm sorry. I don't believe in that. Yeah. But my thing is, so going to high schools, because you all know, do we have all these things now in our local high schools? I know you do it to private schools. Sure. Do you have that in public? You do have that in public now? Yeah. yeah. Well, that executive order was just in the, it's not, it's not the law. It's for choice. Mm-hmm. Well, I think my mom being a chair design, it was kind of, you know, looked down upon. But we have the pronoun discussions. If you have students, I mean, like I now have students who are biologically female that I have to call me. Schools feel pressure. Well, an obligation that all students that attend there feel welcome, regardless yeah. of how they associate with their gender. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, 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 no. You're super good. I think. No, 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 no. This is super helpful. I think it's good to answer questions that folks have. Okay, so. We talked about gender and biological sex, right? It's two different things. When these two sort of mismatch, when they don't correspond one to one, and this might not just be a biological male who feels like a, whose psychology sort of makes him feel like a female. This might be a biological male who just doesn't feel like a male, right? We there's a spectrum in the sort of orthodox position culturally. Um, that males on this side, you've got like Lou Ferrigno over here and like Paris Hilton over here, and then you could be anywhere in between. Um, a lot of times what you hear from folks when they're sort of in this position where there's a mismatch, where they have what's called gender dysphoria, um, which is what the DSM-5, uh, the American Psychological Association sort of handbook of... Um, it's not called a disorder anymore, but sort of handbook of conditions calls it. Um, that is when there's sort of a mismatch between um, gender and sex. And a lot of times the language folks will use, they'll say things like, I feel trapped in my own body, right? And so, like, don't say I never did anything for you because to prep for this class, I went and watched the Keeping Up with the Kardashians episodes where Bruce, now Caitlyn Jenner, is transitioning. <laughs> And this is like the sort of language that he uses over and over again, right? There's sort of a lot of a lot of pain here. Um, Bruce now, Caitlyn Jenner feels like, I you know, like I'm trapped in my own body. Um, 
I, I'm a man, but I don't feel like a man, etc., etc. There's a lot of that sort of like misery language um, that's sort of used, and that's what we'll encounter there. Um, okay, so it's important to realize, like Cameron said, that this sort of gender moment is not it's in itself a free-floating issue, right? Like this isn't something that just like pops up out of nowhere and now we've got to deal with it, right? This is an outgrowth of a deeper worldview, a branch off a more robust tree, we might say. Um, is it agenda-driven? Um, yeah, I, I, you definitely that's a part of it, right? There's probably a, I mean, a number of reasons. Well, I don't think growing organically by any no, 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 no. And I think if you if you look at the if you look at the science, right, it all feels like advocacy research because it is. Um, but um, so this tree that the sort of gender issues sprout from um, is called postmodernism, right? Broadly, um, and postmodernism is sort of a way of thinking that sort of like sheds all the like constraints of any kind of authority right so we like we'll break from the church and we'll break from established wisdom and things like that um, and generally they will sort of advocate for ditching what we might call like capital T truth um, like sort of objective reality like whether we acknowledge it or not this is what is right like God is the creator of the heavens and the earth and whether you acknowledge that or not that doesn't change the fact that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth um, that has no place in a postmodern system, right? Objective truth claims, there's no room for that. Um, and so this sort of encourages us to create our own reality, to make our own truth, um, and to live out what that means for us, which is problematic for a number of reasons, because if my truth says your truth is a lie, then we have to decide whose truth is actually truth and um, stuff like that. But um, the French existentialist, Jean-Paul Sartre, um, though himself not a postmodern philosopher as such, uh, is sort of helpful in helping us understand, like from an academic perspective, where the rubber meets the road for this, this postmodern tree. He says, There is no traced out path to lead man to his salvation. He must constantly invent his own path. But to invent it, he is free, responsible, without excuse, and every hope lies within him. This is the tree. This is absolutely the tree that this gender moment grows out from. Okay, you are the master of your soul, the captain of your fate. Even, you know, what biological sex you're assigned is up for debate. This is all malleable. Everything in nature is malleable. Okay, so with this sort of gender landscape that we have in mind, uh, we can start to look at sort of what the Bible has to say about this question. Uh, and this is also important because I think when I was younger, it was always like God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And that's like a lot of times like less fulfilling now because like the force with which the gender conversation kind of comes at us is much stronger than it once was. This is, you know, in sort of a post-Christian era, if you'll forgive a cliche, right, Christianity and Judeo-Christian values have a lot less hegemonic influence in the society and culture at large than they used to. Um, so it's important for us to think meaningfully through what the Bible says about this. So um, 
we'll just go straight to the beginning, right? Obviously, and um, we will start at Genesis 1:27, and you should have this on your paper somewhere. It might be on the back page. All right. So we see here, God created man in His own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. There it is, right? Like there's honestly the answer to today's question, right? God did create them male and female. Um, And what's more, we go on to read in verse 28 uh, that God commands Adam and Eve to multiply and to fill the earth. Now, this is obviously an action that requires a certain amount of gender particularity, right? You have to have, obviously, the right pieces to uh, multiply and to fill the earth. Um, And so... Their creation especially uh, is with a view to procreation. And then as we move on to Genesis 2.20, we see that among all the animals, not a helper was found fit for man. And so God brings Eve in verses 22 to 23 to compliment him just as he compliments her, right? So it's not just that God creates man with meaningless differences between male and female, right? Uh, These differences have a reason. They complement each other, right? In Genesis 2, we might see that male and female are effectively puzzle pieces that help each other uh, fulfill God's command to subdue the earth and to fill it. Um, And then we also see that there's no sort of difference between body and mind for God, right? And in the Bible, it knows nothing of a difference between biological sex and psychological gender expression. There's no um, indication that there's a difference there. And I think we can see that especially in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul talks about our resurrection bodies, right? It's not just your soul or your psychological expression that will be resurrected at the last day. It is, in fact, your body, right? For God, matter matters, right? You're all good Anglicans. You read the book of Common Prayer, and when we sit in there at the 930 service, we kneel and we stand up, and sometimes we bow, and we do things like that. Why? Because the body prays, right? It's not just the soul that's involved in worship or in living before the face of God. The body is involved in that too. Um, And so we see really that the ideal design for God is that your gender expression and your biological sex would match up. Um, Okay, so I think this is important to keep in mind, um, especially contra the postmodernism we just talked about in which you sort of create your own reality um, and then you get to rule over it. Rather, if God is the creator, whether we acknowledge him as the creator or not, then he gets to decide what is best for us and what sort of design ends up in our best interest in our human flourishing, right? Um, If you have kids, you tell them not to run into the street, not because you don't want them to have the fun of running into the street, but because you want them to continue to have fun after they run into the street, right? Um, They don't run into the street because that's not in their best interest, right? You say, we forbid you from doing this, so that you will live longer than just tonight, right? Um, and we see a similar thing sort of with, uh, with God and um, his prescriptions for uh, what our gender and biological sex are to look like. Um, a biblical idea of humanity and of sort of anthropology has to find 
its seat in the first three chapters of Genesis, right? We see a creation that's created good in the first two chapters, um, a creation that is pure and um, without flaw. It's ordered and it's purposeful in its design. Um, and then in Genesis 3, we see a dissension into sin and then um, disorder and chaos enter the creation. Um, and then sexual confusion comes as a result of this, right? Paul tells us in Romans 1 that folks give up natural uses of the other gender um, in what's a result of Romans 1 in the sort of outworking or manifestation of Genesis 3 in their own personal lives. Um, and so I think the, uh, the biblical lens through which we see the gender issue um, is important not just because the Bible is true, certainly that's the case, um, but ultimately because the Bible offers the most meaningful response to the gender moment. Okay, um, Not even the trans movement, the LGBTQIA movement, um, offers this sort of meaningful response because there is no hope in the LGBTQ response to transgenderism, to the feelings of gender dysphoria. There is no meaningful response, right? At best, we can go have a few surgeries, right? Have some things reassigned, and at best, what we end up with is a very elaborate form of disguise, right? Every single cell in your body still has either an XX or an XY chromosome. When you go to have things operated on, if you have surgery for whatever reason, the doctor will need to know what your biological sex is underneath that disguise. And so when we look at the statistics, we see that trans folks who have experienced gender dysphoric feelings and have begun to transition by taking hormones of the opposite gender and then having some surgeries, we see that not only are they on the whole no more satisfied with their life, there's no more fulfillment, no more joy than they had before they transitioned. In a lot of instances, there's less fulfillment. There's even more of the feeling of being trapped. Do you have something to... Yeah, that's right. It's not, it's not a healthy good thing. No, uh-uh. No, 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 you're good. Paul McHugh, who was the director of psychiatry at Johns Hopkins, um, stopped performing surgeries. In fact, he was one of the largest, most l loudest voices against it decades ago when sort of become became a fad in the psychiatric literature. Um, and he said the evidence doesn't support it. We're not going to do it. Um, and so they didn't do it for about 40 years. Recently, they've started doing it again against his direction. But um, it's very interesting that Paul McHugh, who I don't believe is a Christian. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, we talked about the chromosomes of genetics. So, how does LGBT, which is science based, reconcile that? I mean, do they just say, hey, you're. you're yeah, so I think. Don't well, what they'll. What we, the, the deeper question, I think, to ask there is what science is it based on, right? There's a certain, um, do you have something to well, add? Well, what we said there is this is that whole separation of sex versus gender. Right. Saying sex is the biological reality. Gender is um, it's kind of a, an individual expression based on your kind of personal preference. That, would, you, would you say that's accurate? Yeah, so yeah. They're throwing science out. They're saying it's, it's what you feel mentally. 
sure. Uh, yeah, and I think it's the enabling probably that, or the pressure to just push forward against all thought out opposition. Yeah, yeah, and I think what's it? Sure, and what's what's hard about the conversation is the LGB and the T are sort of apples and oranges in a sense, right? Um, because we might uh, look at sexual preferences much different on the whole than how I perceive myself to be as a male or a female, right? If you're in the LGB umbrella, you don't have to like make a decision to have any kind of surgery or do anything like that. You just choose to be with who you want to be with. Um, does that answer your question? Okay. I think one thing I would also say follow that is there is a, a professor at Johns Hopkins who said you know, gender dysphoria is a modal disorder. So it, it's something that we would interpret the same way you would anorexia. Yeah, yeah that's Paul McHugh. Yeah. I say it's false to a person who has uh, anorexia a lot of times the physical reality of how they see their body uh, is not consistent with sorry, how they view their body is inconsistent with the physical reality. Yeah. So a person who may weigh 90 pounds may see themselves as weighing 200 pounds. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's a, there's a disconnect between yeah. the individual perception, self-perception and yeah. physical reality. And so, uh, and so that a person said we should treat gender dysphoria in the same, in the same way. Yeah. Um, and, we, and, you know, psychologically, with all sensitivity. Uh, and there was, a, there was a huge pushback against that. Yeah. He got to keep his job, Paul McHugh did, but his influence in the sort of curriculum building of the Johns Hopkins Medical School was cut, I think, greatly. That's my impression anyway. Okay, last point, and then we'll have like three minutes for questions, and then I'll be around, and you can chat later if you want to. Um, so the LGBTQIA folks have no meaningful um, story, no meaningful restoration for folks who struggle with gender dysphoria, the Christian story does, right? The Christian story says you have these feelings of gender dysphoria. That's not how we were originally created to be, right? This points back to a fall. This points back to a sin nature that we've all inherited, right? This brokenness that some of us experience in tendencies toward alcoholism or toward drug addiction or toward any number of other exploits others might just experience in the form of gender dysphoria. And what the Christian story has to offer to that is that a day is coming when, um, after running the race and fighting the good fight, right, and sort of resisting feelings and resisting taking action upon certain feelings um, and doing your best, not doing your best, but um, through constant looking toward Jesus, through constant repentance and belief, um, orienting your will to God's, a day is coming when... Jesus will wipe every tear from your eyes, right? He will uh, remove all the sadness, all the sorrow, all the pain, and we'll all be made whole, right, in a position where um, these sinful desires are no longer something that we battle with. This disjunction between how we feel and what we are is no longer present, right? The Christian story has that unique hope of restoration that the world story doesn't have uh, as we think about this. So... um, that's sort of all I have. Um, yeah. See, one thing I would, I would throw out there, I wrote an article about this on the Rudy blog called Gender Warriors Are Not Helping Kids. 
But basically, I think one of the things that some psychologists and counselors I know who deal with this with teenagers, uh, they're observing, I kind of was kind of saying this over to that side of the room to the teenagers, is what this whole um, moment is creating is a lot of self-doubt and confusion for uh, you know a boy who may have interests that are not you know culturally stereotypical. So like you know a boy who's not into sports and not into guns and not into hunting and not into trucks, uh, they kind of start to question, oh, am I really am I really a, a man? You know, am I really a male? You know, is there some transition that needs to be made? And, and you know, the argument I make in that article is that the the Bible is clear on you know the boys are boys and girls are girls, but in terms of how gender is expressed, there's there's like very little prescribed in the Bible. So if you're a girl and you're not into dolls and clothes and whatever you know all the, the cultural stereotypes are, sure, you're more like, like some girls in our youth group who are into hunt, deer hunting and into sports and stuff like that. Yeah, like the Bible doesn't say any, there's anything yeah, wrong with that. Yeah, that's right. The Bible is a lot more. Uh, free and tolerant uh, and permissive uh, on the expression of gender than the culture is. Yeah, and that's the right. The culture is actually very rigid on this, and so I would just kind of say, if you're a you know you're a boy and, and you don't fit the stereotypical mold, that doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. That doesn't mean that, that there's some transition that needs to occur. Right. Like God has made you that way, and you're accepted in that way, and you don't need to have this sense of self-doubt. Yeah. Yeah. It, could you speak very quickly yeah. to how to approach this as a Christian with as you, you have a bullet here to be loved and to understand that we all suffer from brokenness. Sure. For instance, my idol addiction versus this brokenness. Yeah. I mean how should I like we there's so much hate in the world. Right. I think this is there's probably room for a wisdom decision here, right? Because I think as a Christian, we have like, as Christians, we have probably a twofold obligation. One is to uh, teach the truth and do it tenaciously, right? And not concede any ground to a secular worldview. Um, but we also are obligated to teach that truth in love. Um, and so I think um, maybe in the context of like a conversation with somebody who's trans. So like one of my best friends in California um, was trans like they had not surgically transitioned but they had begun to biologically transition and a lot of times what that looked like in our conversations um, was essentially her asking what do you like how do you feel about the trans stuff and me saying I think it's a sin I don't love you any less like we are still friends I think you know like um, that relationship still exists but um, that doesn't make me feel like this is any uh, more acceptable in the eyes of God, right? And it's not simply unacceptable because it's against God's design. It is unacceptable for that reason, to be sure. But it's also unacceptable because God desires for his creatures to flourish. And if you are actively acting contra to what God's will for humanity is, then you're by definition failing to flourish. Does that make sense? Does that answer your question? There's a big challenge right now. Yeah. Like in Birmingham, my friends are now homeschooling their children because they don't want their children to be culturally around it. So I kind of hope their children are going to college. 
Sure. Yeah, I think there are probably a number of ways to think through that. Um, yeah, I think it's it, it is hard because it used to be like you could just send your kids to Covenant College and Lookout Mountain or something after going through Westminster, and you know they just by the time they hit it they'd be prepared to critically assess it. Um, that's why classes like these are so important because. The questions are coming to you now, right? They're not coming to Dr. Johnson at Covenant College in junior year, you know, psychology 301. They're coming to you. And so that's why um, having a biblical anthropology and a biblical worldview is, I think, so important for y'all as parents, for us as youth pastors, for y'all as students to be able to sort of critically assess the claims of the world that are bent on human autonomy My email is tucker at cathedraladvent.com. If you want to email, you want to grab some coffee, you want to talk more, whatever. Um, we can talk resources, whatever. If you have any questions, too, I'll be here for a minute. But y'all are also, your kids are probably getting out soon, so you're free to leave. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, thanks, man. Appreciate it. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.